the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to finding out what you need to know. We'll do the best we can. Questions on what we believe as Christians and why. Questions about something going on in your life. We'll do the best that we can. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. It just takes one button. Call now. At the top of the screen, you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time with the main number. It's 340-9585. Hope you had a great day at church yesterday. Uh, We did. We had a lot of people here at it just was a good day and um, pray that you got the opportunity to minister to somebody uh, to pray with somebody we had some people give their life to Jesus yesterday and uh, it was just really a good day it's neat to see Jesus sort of moving around in the building and that's what happens when Christians get together hey one quick uh, reminder tonight uh, before we go right to questions uh, because it's Monday we have our men's women's and youth Bible studies tonight kids of all ages high school age junior high school age uh, we have child care for the younger ones uh, but uh, for the men and women all at 7 o'clock tonight they meet together for worship and then they break up into separate groups for uh, the Bible studies, the women are starting a brand new book tonight, the book of Judges. I personally believe that that's the most fun book in the Bible to teach. The character studies are so rich uh, and so well developed. I mean, these are not strangers that we meet in Judges. Um, but uh, all of that begins tonight. I think Crystal Snellenberg will be teaching the ladies the the kickoff study in Judges. Uh, so you are more than welcome. The ladies, you can watch it at calvaryessay.com on live stream if you can't make it here tonight. Good good way to start a week to be in Bible study. Okay, while we're waiting for some phone calls, let me get to some questions that have been sent in. Uh, the first one comes from our friend Dorothy. Uh, she is uh, the one who is... Uh, She's been such a sweetheart over the years. She's blind. Please keep her in your prayers. Uh, and yet she's full of the joy of the Lord. Uh, and Dottie, I'm, uh, Dorothy, I'm, I'm not quite sure that I can make sense of your question, so I'm going to do the best I can. Um, you see, greeting, greetings from the Texas Hill Country. A caller asked about a King James uh, scripture. I don't remember the address, but KJV had interpreted the word wrong, and it said bowels. Can you repeat that if you and your program director remember what I'm talking about? Um, I really don't um, remember. 
uh, Dorothy, and I'm so, so sorry. But whenever you see the bowels, it's it's interesting. The newer translations have the word bowels, I think, uh, in in Scripture, Old and New Testament, like five times uh, throughout the book. The King James has it 45 times. And uh, it's always a reference to either uh, a knife being plunged in, the bowels coming out. Uh, The ladies will see that in the book of Judges in the not-too-distant future. Uh, Or it's referring metaphorically to the innermost parts of our being. Um, um, So uh, the bowels are the place where it hurts. We carry things in our gut is the idea. So uh, that's the best I can do without more information, Dorothy. I'm so sorry. It's really, really good to hear from you and uh, know that we love you and we're praying for you. Um, She also adds, just curious, uh, as was a friend of mine, um, why would a friend want to know why? Because of King James' reputation um, and because England didn't want that version, why would we bring it here uh, to the United States, is I guess what he's saying. Um, Dorothy, the King James, it's, uh, it has nothing to do with the one who commissioned it. King James was, was simply the man who um, commissioned the work. Uh, he was a, a man who professed Christ for his own selfish reasons. There's uh, lots and lots of reasons to doubt uh, that he was literally saved, really saved. Um, but but that's just the name of the book. The translation uh, itself has nothing to do with the man King James. It's just he was the king and he commissioned it. So um, I, I'm really not, um, I, I don't see why that would be a problem. Uh, it is a wonderful translation. It's a memorable translation. Uh, the problem uh, and the reason, I think, for the proliferation of all of the new translations is simply that the the language, the English language that was used in 1611 uh, isn't the same language that we use now. We speak differently, and it requires a lot of of uh, explaining. You know, when I was uh, uh, first really getting into the Word of God, I'd go to these Bible studies with my King James, and uh, they would say, well, this word really means this, and it should be translated this. And what I discovered is that most of the pastors, the teachers who were doing that, were quoting then from the 1984 version of the NIV. And that's why I first changed from the King James to the to the 84 version of the NIV. Um, uh, I think I've shared this on this program before. Uh, but the King James is so memorable. And because of my vision, Dorothy knows this about me as well, uh, I'm visually impaired. And there's a whole bunch of the time when I'm up teaching where I can't see anything. I mean, I can't say I can see there's an audience out there. I just can't make anything out. But I can't look down and see my notes. And uh, I don't bring a Bible into the pulpit, but but I have the the Bible, um, the portion of the Bible that we're teaching from uh, printed out in really, really big letters. But there's still a lot of times when I just can't see it. So I, I, I almost always revert to King James. Um, because that's the way I first remembered it, and it's just sort of stuck in my mind. So my church knows, Dorothy, that if I'm quoting King James when I started in the NIV, it's because I can't see. So I hope that helps. I'm sorry I couldn't get uh, have a better memory about the word bowels. Here is a question from um, Martin. He says, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, what does persecution for 10 days mean? Um, uh, let me read it, Martin, and then I'll, I'll explain it. Um, it says, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, we know that this is the letter to the church in Smyrna, uh, one of Jesus' seven letters. We also know, um, Martin, that this is um, uh, prophetic. Um, the entire book of Revelation is a prophecy. Um, so um, there's um, a couple of things that, that I think I can help with. When he says that some of you will be put in prison uh, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days... Uh, my view is that biblically, this is just a way of saying your persecution will be brief, it'll be intense, 
but it will be brief. It's not going to last forever. There are others, and, and um, um, I just don't know enough about the history uh, of the church to, to, to have an opinion on it, but there are some who say, well, there were 10 specific acts of persecution against this church, so Jesus was predicting it. I personally don't think so, Martin. I think that uh, the persecution of 10 days is just them saying that the persecution may sound, may, may seem intense, it may seem like it's going to last forever, but it's really going to last for only a short time. And in this particular church, uh, they they went through four specific trials. Well, we know historically, and this was one that was a reference to uh, being put in prison. Uh, the Smyrna believers were being persecuted unfairly, and and they were tested by some of their best going to prison. Um, they obviously weren't the first who were suffering who suffered imprisonment for their faith. Peter did, uh, John the apostle did, Paul. Uh, the apostle did. Um, all of the other apostles knew the inside of a prison so well. Um, it, it's just, Jesus said, rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. He said, you're blessed or you're happy. Um, unfortunately, he didn't say we'd feel happy. He just said that we would be blessed in the process. So, Martin, I think that's what he's talking about. We also know that many of them in Smyrna gave their life for the church, in fact, uh, the church at Smyrna corresponds to the time in church history uh, to identify with the, the martyr church. Um, my church, Calvary Chapel San Antonio, your church, Martin, wherever it is you go, um, our churches are built on the foundation laid by um, the, the first two churches mentioned in Jesus' letter, the, the letter to Ephesus, the apostolic uh, church. Uh, and the second church, Smyrna, and we grow because of the blood that was shed there. Um, history tells us they were faithful, uh, and it did cost many of them their lives. It was February twelve or February second, rather, in one fifty six A.D., when the disciple of John, the apostle, was arrested. His name was Polycarp. And he made no effort to flee. He was an old man. He was beloved. Uh, people kept telling him, you know, he, he had the opportunity to, to, to miss out on dying. All he had to do was recant his faith. Uh, he was beloved even by the, the, the uh, authorities that would eventually kill him. And they didn't want to put him to death, so they tried to encourage him to just denounce Christ. That We know you don't mean it, but we don't want you to die. Um, but he refused to do it. Um, he was 84 years old. He said, for 80 and four years, my, my Lord has not denied me once. How then can I deny him now? Um, they offered him a last meal. Um, he ate, in fact, with those who came to arrest him. After they were finished eating, he asked them for permission to be alone for a time of prayer. Uh, he prayed for two hours and was finished. And so changed were the hearts of his captors after listening to his prayers that they continued their effort to beg him to recant. They just wanted to set him free. Um, but he wouldn't. They set him on fire, and that's how he died. By the way, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us that uh, when they lit the flames, the wind for a time blew the flames away from him. And that just would have prolonged his suffering all the while he was heard uh, by bystanders to thank God for counting him worthy to suffer for Christ, as many other martyrs had done. Uh, mercifully, a Roman soldier put an end to his suffering with uh, with a spear. And it was said that as his flesh burned, the aroma of perfume, almost flowery, filled the air. And burning flesh stinks, but not so with this man Polycarp in Smyrna. Hope that helps, Martin. Thank you for asking the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, here is my next question from Margie. Uh, she says, Pastor Ron, were there two or three sets of brothers among the 12 disciples? Uh, Margie, there's some debate about that. I personally think there were three. 
Uh, but there are some who would disagree and say that there's no uh, mention of, of uh, Matthew, uh, the son of Alphaeus, or Levi uh, was his Jewish name, uh, and James, the one that we know as James the Less, uh, he was also a son of Alphaeus. Uh, and uh, Alpheus was a fairly common name. Um, the reason I lean toward uh, the fact that there were three sets of brothers, we know that uh, James and John, the sons of thunder, and Peter and Andrew, uh, and uh, uh, Matthew, if in fact they were brothers, and James the less, um, uh, I, I think that's important. Uh, the, the family connection uh, is there. Um, the one thing that we don't have is the interaction between Matthew and James the way we have it with the other two sets of brothers. And I think that's probably why some people suggest that they were different Alpheuses. Uh, I, I, I personally don't think so. I, I think there were three sets of brothers. But there's no way to know for sure. We'll know, Margie, when we get to heaven. Here is a question from Brenda, an important one. I pray in Jesus' name and still don't get my prayers answered. Why is that since he promised we would? I think my faith is strong. Um, Brenda, uh, because I don't know you, there's no way that I can I can answer specifically about about individual prayers. But here's what I can say. I don't get some of my prayers answered. Now, I think sometimes we use in Jesus' name as a formula. And that's to misunderstand what in Jesus' name means. Um, when we pray something and we just put that tag in Jesus' name, uh, what it is intended to mean is that in Jesus' name is praying in the name and the power of the one uh, that we're calling on. By that I mean uh, Jesus is holy. We have to seek holiness. Um, I think, Brenda, you might be using in Jesus' name as sort of a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, okay, Lord, I want a new car. I want a new uh, boyfriend or husband. I want a new job. I want more money in Jesus' name. Um, Those aren't going to be prayers that are in the will of God. So praying in Jesus' name means to pray in his will and according to what his name stands for. And, and Jesus, of course, stands for everything holy. You know, here's what I've learned, Brenda. When I pray and I can say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done, then I know that's a check in my heart. My heart is right. And um, I've often said in, in, in our church that I think when I get to heaven, I am going to be the most grateful for a lot of the prayers that didn't get answered the way I wanted them or expected them to be answered. Because Jesus loves me, he loves you, Brenda, and he's withholding things that aren't good for you. You see, he's got a plan for you. And the prayers that he's going to answer are those prayers that are going to help you accomplish that plan. So if you want something that's going to take you away from his will, or if you're praying uh, with the wrong motives, you're praying out of greed, or you're praying out of selfishness, um, he can't answer those prayers. And you, by tagging in Jesus' name on the end, certainly aren't going to change his mind because his intention is to care for you and to love you. So I would examine my heart. James says, the Lord's half-brother, that when we pray and don't get what we ask for, it's because we're praying amiss, the King James says, we're praying with the wrong motive. Or praying so that we get things to feed our flesh. God's not going to answer those kind of prayers. So Brenda, here's what you have to, sort of a test for you. The things that you've been asking for that you haven't received the answers that you hope for. Are those things that you can honestly say with no personal agenda. Nevertheless, God, thy will, not my will be done. Jesus prayed that on the cross. He wanted to avoid the cross. So if you can do that, Brenda, then you're praying in the will of God. And then it's just a matter of trusting that the Lord is going to to answer your prayers um, if it's good for you, and he's not going to answer your prayers if it's not part of his plan for you. Thus, it wouldn't be good for you. It takes a lot of faith. And if you can say, nevertheless, thy will, not my will be done, then your faith is strong. So, Brenda, I hope that makes sense to you. 
You know, I think a lot of times we read, especially in John's Gospel, uh, here's the confidence we have. We know that if we ask anything in his name, um, we have what we ask for. If God hears our prayers, then we have what we ask for. Um, we can't ask outside of his will for anything. And what we're asking for, Brenda, has to be for his glory and not for yours or not for your comfort. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Peter. Peter, I've never been asked this question, and you asking about one of my favorite stories. Uh, Peter says, "What are we supposed to learn from the floating axe head story with Elijah?" Uh, Peter, that's Second Kings chapter six. I actually have done a, a, a pretty thorough teaching on this. You can go to calvarysa.com, and uh, all of our stuff is free there. Um, but but I think it's important now, remember, this is one of those stories that uh, people have told me over the years, um, Pastor Ron, God gave me Second Kings 6. Uh, it begins, you know, there's school of the prophets, and the prophets came to Elisha and said, the place where we're meeting is too small for us, so help us build another. And because our place is way too small for us, um, I've had that, that repeated to me over and over throughout the years. Uh, really, this isn't about at all something being too big or too small. Uh, this is a story that every New Testament Christian can really, really learn from. Now, you have to understand that an axe head seems insignificant to us, but an axe head was a really valuable tool in the ancient world. And this student borrowed an axe head from another. That would mean that if anything was damaged uh, or if anything happened to it or it was damaged, or in this case, would it be lost, that he would be responsible financially for replacing the value of that accent. It appears that he was a little careless with somebody else's property. As a result of that, um, he was whacking away and didn't notice that the axe head was getting loose. And the first thing he would have thought is, I'll never be able to replace the value of this. And so he goes to the man of God, a great thing. And he says, the axe head, I lost it. Now, the question Elisha asks him is really important for us in terms of the application, Peter. He says, where did you lose it? And what Elisha was saying, show me the place that you lost it. Remember, I said he was a little careless with that axe head. It was property that belonged to somebody else. A lot of times as Christians, we're a little careless with God's property. We're not our own. We're bought with a price. When we lose that valuable thing, I think the lesson for us in this story is that you've got to go right back to the place you lost it. It's not one of those things where you can say, oh man, I'm sorry, I blew it. Now help me, Lord. I think when we lose our first love, we start drifting away from the Lord when we fall into sin. I think we've got to go right back to the place where we lost it. And then we go to our man of God. His name is Jesus. And we say, Lord, I lost my passion. I lost my joy. I lost the sense of gratitude for all that you've done. And I need those things back, Lord. And he'll say, go back where you lost it. Right exactly back where you lost it. And let's start walking all over again. Sometimes it means that we've got to take backward steps. To some of us, it seems like, well, I'm going to be wasting time. No. When we reconnect to Jesus, when we go back and find that which we lost, it's always, 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 Peter, a good thing. So personally, I think that's the story. A piece of wood was thrown in and the axe head floated. Obviously, an axe head doesn't float. So a miracle happened. The piece of wood is a, a symbol of the piece of wood by which we were saved, the cross of Jesus Christ. So all we have to do is go back to the cross. Go to the place we lost what we once valued. And then we'll find it. And just like this student found his treasure, he didn't have to pay. You and I will find our treasure, and our treasure, of course, is that sweet fellowship that we have with Jesus. So, Peter, I really hope um, 
that encourages you. If you've lost something or if the Lord's speaking to you out of that story, uh, personally as a pastor, I always get excited when people come to me and say, you know, I was reading this and the Lord was really speaking to me, but I'm not sure what. Then we can sit and talk about, okay, what have you lost? I think one of the tools of the enemy is to try to make us forget about the value of the things that we lost as it relates to our relationship with Jesus. If we'll just remember how important it is to stay close, if we'll stay in love with Him, if our zeal will remain, our passion will grow, then we won't have to worry about going back and finding what we lost because we won't lose it. The problem, of course, is when we recognize too late that we've lost it. And we go right back and do the things Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. Go back and do the things you did at first. We've got just a little bit of time left in this half hour. So let me ask you a question to all of you in the audience. Peter, you and everybody else. Do you love Jesus as much as you once did? Are you as excited about his word? Are you excited about being a part of the body, serving others in the body? If not, then go read 2 Kings chapter 6. I think it's just the first five or six verses. And let the Lord speak to your heart. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585. You're listening to the Word to Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here's a question from Jamie. I hate answering this question, Jamie, because people always get mad at me. Jamie says, who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? And did demons have sex with humans? Well, Jamie, here's what we know. We know that the sons of God, that phrase, is used only in reference to angelic beings. Remember, fallen angels, demons, are angelic beings. So immediately we can... We, we can identify these as supernatural beings. There are people who say, no, the sons of God are the sons of Seth. That makes no sense at all in light of the punishment that comes. You see, this is just before the flood. And if it was just because the sons of Seth, the descendants of, of the godly line of Seth, started um, intermingling or, or having sex with the daughters of men, um, uh, it'd be almost like God was throwing a petulant fit. And we know that's not the case. God is patient and abounding in love. So the sons of God we know are demons. Um, did they have sex with humans? It appears that they did. Now, they would have done that in the form of a human. These are very powerful humans. Jude says uh, these are I'm not humans. They're very powerful demons. Jude says uh, that they were bound because they didn't keep their first estate, their first estate being with God. But, but these are such incorrigible, powerful demons uh, that they had to be bound, being reserved for the day of judgment that will happen in the great tribulation. Uh, we also know that... Um, in Genesis chapter 19, that humans believed they could have sex with the angels who came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Homosexual sex in this case, but they believed they could have sex with them. So they appeared in human form. Now here's what I think, Jamie, was going on. Satan tried to pollute the human line to such a degree that the Christ, the Messiah, who was promised, could not come through the human line. Satan has great theology. He doesn't always remember it, but he has great theology, his doctrine. He understood that God would be a man and God would be uh, a God, 100% God, 100% man. 
And so his response was, okay, let's pollute the human line. And he sent his really powerful angels, these fallen angels, um, to pollute the human line. And, and they were so successful that in the flood, only one family, eight people in all were saved, and God started over. That certainly wouldn't have been a just response if these were the sons of Seth. Now, obviously, Jamie, the objection to this is that, well, nowhere are we told that angels have sex with humans. Um, uh, others will say, well, no, that's just pagan theology. No. Um, again, in Genesis 19, the people thought they could have sex with the angels. Uh, that's how far gone everybody's heart was. Um, it's true that 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 can't happen now because God sort of kept all these powerful and corrigible angels bound. But at one time, evidently that was the devil's plans, Satan's plans. Um, to, to say that, that the sons of God were the sons of Seth offers no plausible explanation at all for the flood that comes in context of the story. So the answer, Jamie, is yes, they did. And uh, I will also tell you that that is probably a minority viewpoint among New Testament theologians today. It's the only one that makes sense in the context of the story, though. Here is an anonymous question. In a church, how is it decided what to spend the money on? Do you think people should give to a church if they don't agree with what the money is being spent on? Anonymous, I wish you'd have been a little more specific. Um, generally, I can answer that question. Um, when we go to a church, we should go to a church that we can wholeheartedly support the mission of the church. You know, there are lots and lots of churches who uh, send missionaries all over the world uh, other churches who spend the money that they they get on buildings and and um, sound systems and all kinds of theatrical um, um, things, you know, smoke on the stage and laser lights and things like that. Um, if you don't support that in your church, uh, then change churches. Uh, there are churches who um, pay their pastors a lot of money. I, I wouldn't go to a church that did that. Uh, at our church, um, my elders and I decide what to spend the money on. Now, it's not a difficult thing because God has given us a vision of ministry. We've been doing it now for all these years. Uh, but our money is spent giving it away. Uh, we don't have a building of our own because we give all of our money away. We can't save any money. God won't let me mortgage the money or mortgage a building. So um, the, the idea, Anonymous, is find a church that you can agree with in terms of mission. What's their focus? What's their purpose? And if you can agree with them, then you, then you ought to give. So uh, if, you, if you don't think you can support the vision of ministry that your church has, then by all means, find a church that you can and then give joyfully, give cheerfully. Uh, the Bible says give hilariously and watch and see how the Lord blesses you. But um, don't stay in the church and not give because you're ripping the church off, but you're also getting ripped off yourself. So I hope that helps. Let's go to Ray calling from San Antonio area. Ray, on line one, you're on the air. Thanks for holding. You're, on, go, you're ready to go. All right. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thanks for Hi, Ray. taking my call. This is not really a... It, it's more asking for what do you think. Um, I understand from my upbringing, well, that was Catholic, but anyway, um, that uh, part of it is my heritage would be, and this is not from a DNA, you know, 23 and me or any of that, <laughs> just from, uh, you know, hearsay from my, my folks that part of the German in there and part Irish. And the other day it was in my sphere of consciousness that uh, 
Um, the Irish took uh, early Christianity. This portrayal was that the Christian church was predated others, you know, back from the Irish. But at any rate, the explanation of the Trinity, uh, a clover was used. And, of course, we know, well, a four-leaf clover is really good luck, and I'm not even getting that, you know, part. It was just a matter of you've, I've heard you explain, you know, various you know, sundry ways of, you know, people explaining the Trinity with, uh, anyway, I wondered if you'd heard of the clover um, explanation, uh, and I'll just listen. Okay. On the thank radio. you, Ray. Yeah. Thank you, Ray. I actually have heard of the clover um, um, illustration. Uh, the problem with every illustration is it falls short. You know, I can take one leaf of a clover and I pull it off, and it's still not part of the clover. I can't take that one leaf and say, you're a clover. I, I can only say you're a part of a clover. I've had people use an egg, you know, the, the shell and then the yolk and, and then the white part of the egg. Uh, but, but you know, you can take an egg and separate the yolk from the white part. Uh, none of those things that you separate constitute an entirety of an egg. Um, the thing that we've got to get in our minds and hearts is that... Um, we have one God, not three. One times one times one is one. But he's manifest in three persons. But see, unlike the clover leaf that I pull off that leaf, when you have Jesus alone, or when you have the Holy Spirit alone, or when you look to the Father alone, all three of those manifestations of God are fully God. Not one-third, one-third, one-third. But all three are 100% God. And that's where every illustration breaks down. So um, I think it's just better to understand that, that each of the very distinct persons of the Godhead have a distinct identity, a distinct and different ministry. The Father sent the Son to reveal the Father. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to reveal the Son. So it's a perfect triunity of mission and unity. And um, I think that's, that's enough. We can say, well, I just don't understand it because one plus one plus one is three. But, but we need to start thinking in terms of multiplication. And if we look at God, we see the Bible declares the Father, declares the Son, and declares the Spirit, and gives different ministry distinctions to them, makes it clear that all three are God, but that all three are separate and distinct, all the while in perfect unity. So, Ray, the, the clover uh, just, just doesn't work as an illustration. By the way, I was sort of laughing when you talk about your, the, this isn't one of those DNA things. I had somebody ask me recently uh, if, if I was ever interested in checking my DNA, and I, I told and Paul and I laugh about this all the time, but we'd be afraid to see what's in our background. I just prefer to think of my DNA. I go all the way to heaven. Um, my DNA is, is Jesus. And uh, I don't need to know any of the dark, dirty secrets. And I honestly have a really difficult time understanding why that kind of search would be of any interest at all to any Christian. I know that it's different strokes, but... Um, We've been adopted by God. I, I don't know how more connected we need to be to anything or anyone than that. So, Ray, thanks. I'm sorry the clover didn't work. Ronald says, is it, I'm sorry, is repentance required for salvation? And if it is, wouldn't that be salvation by works? Uh, Ronald, repentance is required for salvation, um, but but certainly that's not a salvation by work. Uh, when we come to Jesus, uh, we come because of repentance. You see, that's the work the Holy Spirit does. Jesus said, when he comes, the Holy Spirit will testify of me. He'll convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Now, here's the thing that we 
understand about those three things. When we're convicted of sin, then we know in our heart, okay, I'm guilty. I got to stop. When we're convicted of righteousness, then we make an about face. Instead of walking toward sin, we're now walking toward righteousness, which means we're walking toward Jesus, walking with and toward Jesus. That's what the definition of repentance is. And then thirdly, if we're convicted of judgment, uh, if we don't repent, we know that judgment awaits and that judgment is just. So, yes, repentance is required. Uh, what I tell our church all the time, Ronald, is that when you meet the Jesus of the Bible, that my Jesus, he changes you. I love the fact that we can come to him any way that we are. We can come to him guilty. We can come to him having committed the worst possible sins. And when we genuinely ask for forgiveness, we turn from sin. Forgiveness is granted. And we're perfectly clean. Come, the prophet Isaiah said, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they may be white as snow. Think about that for a moment, Ronald. The people that teach, all you got to do is believe, come to Jesus any way you are. If they teach it, you don't, change isn't required. Then you've come to a stranger rather than a savior. So yes, you have to repent of sin. You've got to acknowledge it. Um, we, we often have people that come forward and get saved. There was a really funny incident in our church this weekend. In fact, uh, I got saved. Um, his Christian girlfriend, and I always have trouble with these things. Why would a Christian girlfriend be with a guy who's not saved? But the fact is they were living together. And they were told, you, you've got to stop having sex. And this guy got saved. He answers the call, the, the invitation, gives his life to Jesus. He's excited. Then somebody says, well, you know, if you're living together, you've got to move out. You've got to stop having sex. He said, why? See, that's the world. But, but, but because he really met Jesus, he understands the need. Doesn't understand the why. Certainly doesn't like it. But we know instinctively that sin has to go. We have to change. So it's not works. Salvation, repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit, Ronald, I guess is the shortest way to answer that question. Here is a question from Greg. Pastor Ron, could someone be a Calvary Chapel pastor if they didn't believe all of the things that most Calvary chapels do? Um, Greg, I would say uh, it would be best if they were not. I mean, Calvary chapels are a group of affiliated churches, and what we believe defines who we are. Uh, typically, um, not so much since Pastor Chuck died, but but for most of my years as a Calvary Chapel pastor, uh, people could come from anywhere in the country and know that when they came to Calvary Chapel, they would know what we believed. They would know the style of worship that we were going to have. They would know... Uh, the uh, uh, Bible was going to be primary. We we're going to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, and that's what they expected. It's who we are. It's what defines us. Uh, just two weeks ago, or, or a week ago now, I guess, it'll be two weeks this coming Saturday, I had a pastor's discipleship class. And once a year, we go through what we call the Calvary Chapel Distinctives. And uh, we talk about this is who we are. It's what we believe and why. So if somebody says, I want fellowship with you, but I don't believe in the things that you believe in, fellowship would be difficult. Now, it doesn't mean they couldn't be a pastor somewhere else, but it means that they would need to be in fellowship with those of us that we uh, are in agreement with. And anything short of that would be divisive. Uh, it would be confusing. So, uh, Greg, doctrinally, uh, we're pre-trib, pre-mill in our eschatology. Uh, that's that is a requirement, not for salvation. Certainly, a requirement to be uh, a pastor at Calvary Chapel. Um, we uh, we're uh, uh, sort of uh, against the prosperity doctrine. Uh, we we are not Calvinists, um, um, but our main identity is that we teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. So, Greg, I hope that helps. Here is a question. Oh, Dorothy said, it's, it's in a follow-up. 
Thank you, Pastor Ron. And yes, the verse you quoted about bowels or that someone else had asked about, actually you said, referred to the innermost workings. Uh, for example, uh, couples um, and uh, a couple of us uh, and God might know each other. I'm not sure what that means, Dorothy. Uh, this morning, another pastor mentioned a similar verse, I believe in Philippians chapter 1 or 2. Blind, I have trouble noting these things and then retrieving them as needed. Uh, I go to Hadley Institute for the Blind, so I'll get there eventually and hopefully ask questions better. Dorothy, you're asking questions, fine. And then she says this, and this just melts my heart. We blind ones have to stick together, but especially us brothers and sisters in Christ. So, uh, Dorothy, thank you for the clarification. Let me read those two passages. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8 says, For God is my record, how greatly I long after all of you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And Philippians 2, 1 says, If there be any, therefore, if there be any comfort, consolation in Christ, if any comfort or love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, those are the, the deepest things in common. So that's the question. Thank you, Dorothy, for clearing that up very, very much. We go to our next question. This one is from Anonymous. He or she says, I struggle with anger a lot. How can I not sin in my anger? Uh, Anonymous Galatians chapter 5 says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So you need to exercise self-control. Here's something that, that will help you just in terms of identifying uh, whether or not you're in danger. Uh, if you find yourself sinning in your anger, you know that that's the flesh in control. If you don't respond, if you die to that anger and then respond with kindness, the Bible says to repay no man evil for evil. So if somebody does something to you and you get really angry, in the power of the Spirit, you won't sin. It's not a sin to be angry. That's very important. But it is a line that we cross when in our anger we sin. Remember, we're always representing Jesus. And so all you have to do is recognize that when you begin to sin, and we all know what that feels like. We're angry and it just sort of sits and sits and we're about ready to explode. We know what that feels like. That's when we lay that at the foot of the cross and give it to Jesus. Anonymous, no one has to give in to their anger and sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. Before that says... And that's as in God is faithful. And God is faithful. It doesn't say you're faithful or I'm faithful. And God is faithful. And then it says, he won't give us more than we can bear. And when we are tempted, he'll give us a way to stand as in victory over that temptation. we got to believe that. we got to believe it. It's frustrating for me as a pastor when people say, well, you know, I just always struggle with the temper. That's the way God made me. Well, but, but you see... If anyone is in Christ, he or she's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Once we meet Jesus, Anonymous, we're no longer free to be who we used to be. We have a, a, a direct command from God himself to be the new person in Christ. And when that old angry person dies, the people in your life, even those that make you angry, those people will notice how different you are and that will give you a platform with which to share Jesus over and over and do so with power. Anger, when you're angry at people, it's selfish rather than selfless. Even if your anger is justified, you still have the responsibility to represent Christ. A study I did yesterday might be a good one for you to listen to online, uh, Anonymous. Uh, we're ambassadors for Christ. We have no right to our own opinion. We, we have no agenda of our own. We don't get to think independently of God, just as Jesus didn't think independently of his Father when he was here. But this is a battle that you've got to win because the enemy is going to try to destroy you and destroy others around you, and he's going to use your anger if you give him the chance. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit. Got time for one more question. This one is from Reggie. Pastor Ron, how can I best prepare to be a pastor? Reggie, 
if you've been called, that's the first thing. You've got to recognize that, that you can't make yourself a pastor, only God can. But if he's called you to do that, what a blessed man you are. So how can you best prepare two things? You've got to love people. You've got to love people. It doesn't mean you won't get irritated by them, but it means you've got to love them. Uh, people are the point. People are the ones for whom Christ died. And you've got to lay your life down for people. You've got to lose you so you can find Jesus' heart for the people that he wants you to pastor. The second thing, Reggie, and it's equally important, is you've got to love your Bible. You've got to love it, love it, love it. You've got to devour it. You've got to be so hungry for the Word of God that you and your Bible are inseparable. When I first got saved, I couldn't get enough. I, I used to, to feel bad that there weren't more hours in the day. I needed to sleep, but I didn't want to go to bed because I wanted to dig into the Bible. I literally would spend, and this is no exaggeration, I know sometimes people exaggerate these things, uh, I would spend 8 to 10 hours a day in the Bible. I read it so much, I had so many questions, I dug in as deeply as I could to get answers to those questions. And the more I read it, the more delighted because of it I was. And then the more Bible came out of my mouth when I was speaking to others. And that's really, Reggie, a pastor's life. You're not going to be able to tell other people to dig into the Bible if you yourself aren't doing it. So love people and love your Bible. If you do those two things, I promise you Jesus will do the rest. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Uh, I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630. The Word, remember, Bible studies, men's, women's, and youth studies tonight at 7. We'll see you then. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.